Welcome to the KRS Molecular Minute Podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I am the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance, a large research collaborative network that is currently composed of over 55 institutions from across the globe. We're focused on precision oncology, biomarker research, with the idea of helping to improve the outcomes of patients with cancer. You're joining the Keras Molecular Minute podcast, where I will be joined by Dr. Tian Zhang, Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Hematology and Oncology at UT Southwestern to provide us with an update of the ASCO-GU meeting. Recently, I was uh, at the ASCO-GU meeting. It was a hybrid meeting, but it was really amazing to see friends and colleagues from across the globe. The Keras Precision Oncology Alliance also had a great presence with two oral presentations that were presented on the Saturday session, the last day of the ASCO-GU meeting. Okay, don't forget to let me know about the show. Subscribe to the show. You can find it on all podcast outlets. Don't forget to write a brief review, refer friends or colleagues. And without further ado, Dr. Tian Zhang on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Tian, welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Always uh, a pleasure to have you on. And it was great to see you in person as well. And uh, briefly for the folks who don't know you, a little bit about uh, uh, you, what you do, and your current role at UT Southwestern, and we get started. Great. Sure. Thanks so much for having me, Chatty. Um, it's certainly a pleasure to talk with you about GUASCO highlights on this podcast. And uh, I'm a, a GU medical oncologist and associate professor in the Division of Hematology and Oncology uh, at UT Southwestern in Dallas, um, the Harold C. Simmons uh, Comprehensive Cancer Center. And I also run the multi-disease and precision oncology program here for basket trials in, in terms of thinking about uh, studies that cross disease disciplines. Um, so I'm really happy to um, think of, through some of the uh, genomic selection and, and uh, treatments that are specifically targeted um, for, for these populations with you today. And you know, at the Keras Molecular Minute podcast, whenever we do this, um, these uh, conference updates, we try to focus on these abstracts and these data that have some clinical applicability because, you know, I mean, there are hundreds of abstracts and, and, and so on. It's very difficult to have all of that in 30 minutes or less. So, um, you know, I thought we'll have a few on prostate, few on kidney and few on bladder. So let's start with prostate. What caught your attention? Wonderful. Uh, um, uh, you know, uh, in prostate, we had three very large uh, phase three trials um, report out this GUASCO, and I think pretty uh, clinically meaningful. Um, the two that were focused on genomic selection um, were around PARP inhibitors. This was the year for PARP inhibitors um, reporting out at GUASCO. Um, and so the two trials in prostate cancer were PROPEL and MAGNITUDE. In short, the, um, both of these trials uh, we're looking at um, patients with uh, first-line metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer treated with uh, a PARP inhibitor plus abiraterone versus abiraterone with uh, placebo, um, so affect uh, abiraterone alone. Um, so in particular, you know, Propel was um, unselected populations, and they enrolled everyone. 796 patients um, were enrolled and randomized um, to either Olaparib with abiraterone or abiraterone with placebo. 
And across the population, they saw an effect um, with uh, an improvement in radiographic progression-free survival was as the primary endpoint, uh, where the hazard ratio was 0.65, um, and the median um, was about 13.8 months for patients treated with the addition of olaparib and 8.2 months for patients treated with abiraterone alone. Um, and this was statistically significant. I would note um, that uh, there was a, about um, a third of uh, patients, 28% or so, um, in each cohort that had HRR mutation, so homologous recombination repair um, mutated status. Um, and I do think that some of the clinical benefit was driven by this um, HR positive group of um, uh, altered homologous recombination uh, patients. Now, the other trial that we, we are talking about quite a bit um, was the magnitude trial, which in juxtaposition was more of a careful um, upfront biomarker selection. So this trial uh, was also a phase three concept, um, which uh, specifically screened for uh, the uh, homologous recombination repair alterations in a panel of genes. And then in that um, enriched population, randomized patients to niraparib with uh, ab abiraterone or abiraterone with placebo. And again, here, the primary endpoint was radiographic progression-free survival. And in particular, in that um, uh, selected population, uh, what I would highlight is that um, there were more than 50% of patients with BRCA1-2 alterations. And this is pretty important because we know that uh, BRCA um, selection helps us uh, select for patients that may benefit from uh, PARP inhibitors as uh, synergistic uh, DNA uh, repair damage um, and synthetic lethality. Um, so what we saw in the BRCA1-2 mutated um, uh, population uh, was that niraparib with abiraterone increased the median progression-free survival to 16.6 months compared to about 11 months for patients treated with abiraterone with placebo. And this hazard ratio was statistically significant as 0.53. And then when we took all comers with um, uh, the homologous recombination repaired uh, alterations, this uh, effect was a little bit uh, closer. So niraparib uh, was 16.5 months for median PFS um, versus abiraterone alone was 13.7 months, um, but also, again, uh, statistically significant. So when we juxtapose these two studies, um, Chadi, what I would um, think about if I was in a um, busy clinical practice is uh, the, the, the homologous recombination selected patients are patients that benefit from PARP inhibition. And, um, you know, in, in particular, um, we did see um, a 22% complete response in, in the magnitude trial for patients treated with the combination. And the big elephant in the room is, you know, do, does the combination, is that better than the sequence of abiraterone followed by a PARP inhibitor? And I would argue that, you know, if we combine these treatments up front for a, a patient population that makes sense, this homologous recombination selected population, that these patients are the ones to benefit early um, from the combination. Um, but again, we need to wait for the, the overall survival data. These are not quite, the events are not quite mature yet um, before we can see the true benefit of the combination versus sequential therapy. Um, but I do think it may be some, a combination worthy of consideration as it gains uh, potentially an approval in this frontline space. I get, I get confused. I'm not going to lie. It's a lot of these trials that have uh, PARP inhibition. 
there's always different PARP inhibitor. And, and I realize that there are different manufacturers for different PARP inhibitor and depends on the sponsor. Are there any fundamental differences between these PARP inhibitors in the term of their work? Like, for example, if, if you find one study, whether it's Propel or Magnitude, that demonstrates an overall survival benefit, do you feel that the PARP is interchangeable with other PARPs or there's something unique about the PARP that was used that you believe may have derived that benefit? You know, there's a whole concept around PARP trapping um, and how much of each inhibitor uh, specifically um, uh, traps PARP, right? Um, the, so PARP is the protein that helps um, the the uh, the DNA repair process, and so if we inhibit that in a patient who has BRCA mutated disease, then they essentially cannot repair the DNA and go into um, cell death. Um, but you know it, the degree of PARP trapping for each of these inhibitors is a little bit different. Now I won't um, I'm I, I don't claim to be a uh, PARP expert, um, but I do think that um, they some of them are a little bit different in terms of how much PARP trapping they have, how much uh, they they will um, allow changes in the um, my, uh, myeloid compartment, for example, um, how much uh, they might be from uh, in, in inhibiting uh, the PARPs, and there um, and some of the, there are some studies that are showing um, that uh, very potent ones um, like talazoprib is um, thought to be probably the most par- uh, potent of these, um, and the least potent um, we we saw some data with valiparib, and it can be greater than um, uh, ten thousand fold, if you will. Um, there's some preclinical data to suggest this, and so you know it, I do think that there is some differences. Um, I don't know that we'll be able to tease them apart in uh, large populations. Um, And obviously, these trials are not um, uh, enrolling and randomizing PARPs to each other, right? Um, So uh, I don't know that we'll ever uh, really get to the heart of this issue, except um, I do believe that PARP inhibitors have an effect in um, homologous recombination selected patients. Um, and, you know, in, in that vein, I, th- I think that it's important to uh, go after testing strategies and make sure that we're finding these patients who might benefit um, from PARP inhibitors or, uh, earlier. Excellent. Uh, anything else on prostate before I move to bladder? Just a quick highlight, there was a, a large series of patients um, with uh, more than 2,900 samples um, that were reported out at, um, at GUASCO. And um, of the seven uh, homologous recombination repair genes uh, that they put in particular looked at, um, uh, BRCA1-2 prevalence was about 26%. Um, and the majority of these were tested at disease progression. So I want to highlight that in prostate cancer, as we're developing treatment resistance across lines of therapy, it's important to start to uh, uh, send circulating tumor DNA, uh, liquid biopsies um, in, in absence of tissue um, as, a, as a potential selection uh, for our patients uh, with uh, these uh, homologous recombination repair uh, damage. And um, in particular, as they um, exhaust further lines of therapy, in my practice, um, I, I certainly will send CTDNA, um, even if I've sent it before, if they've had intervening uh, treatment lines of therapy, I will um, think about sending it again to identify this population. This is such an important point you bring, Tian, and I think one of, one of these critical points that uh, 
payers need to start paying attention to because oftentimes, um, you know, we end up, um, you know, when you send lots of these serial ones um, and, and for monitoring, uh, especially if it's short period of time, uh, reimbursement becomes an issue. So it's uh, thanks for highlighting this and hopefully this will actually get better with time. All right, let's move to bladder. Okay, great. What have you got for us in urothelial carcinoma? Right. So there were also two large trials um, that were reported out um, at in the oral session of the Bladder Cancer uh, Day on Friday. Um, uh, and again, uh, focus on PARP inhibitors. This was um, the year of the PARP inhibitor studies. Um, the first one was Atlantis, um, and this uh, trial was a phase two study um, that uh, selected for patients with homologous recombination repair damage, um, altered genes, and then um, treated those patients after chemotherapy to recaparib. So uh, to go back a second, this was all patients who had metastatic or locally advanced um, urothelial cancer, had received their chemotherapy, and were now selected for um, their HRR um, positivity uh, to then receive rucaparib as their PARP inhibitor. Um, and they uh, looked for particularly somatic alterations and a host of about 10 genes. Um, and 20 patients were randomized to rucaparib, and 20 patients um, were randomized to placebo. Um, and of note, um, you know, this they hedged on progression-free survival as the primary endpoint. And they did see, if we look at the, the Kaplan-Meier curves, there was a difference. Um, median progression-free survival for rucaparib was 35 weeks compared to 15 weeks for placebo. So there was numerically a difference, um, and the hazard ratio was 0.53. Now, if they had more patients, um, they would have um, seen statistical significance. Uh, but here, the p-value was 0.07, and it just missed um, uh, achieving the the uh, general uh, statistical significance as we usually think of it as uh, the 0.05 alpha. Um, so, you know, they were only had 20 patients per cohort. I would argue if they had more patients per cohort, they may have um, very much seen a statistically significant difference. Um, and then the other trial with the PARP inhibitors um, in uh, the bladder cancer space was uh, a trial called Bayou. Um, and Bayou was a uh, trial um, also of metastatic urothelial cancer, but um, platinum ineligible. So they couldn't um, be candidates for uh, cisplatin um, or carboplatin uh, chemotherapy. Um, these patients were randomized um, to receiving either tevalumab with olaparib or tevalumab with placebo. So again, asking the question of whether uh, the addition of a PARP inhibitor would improve upon standard of care PD-1 inhibitor uh, duralimab. They stratified for either their homologous recombination repair status, mutant versus wild type, as well as the Bajoran risk index, which we know to be a prognostic uh, risk index. Um, and so here, uh, the primary endpoint was around progression-free survival. Um, and with a median follow-up around uh, 10 months, they um, showed a group of patients, 78 patients treated with uh, duralimab with olaparib and 76 patients treated with duralimab with placebo. 
Um, and the median progression-free survival really wasn't um, much different in the intention to treat population. It was about 4.2 months in the combination cohort versus 3.5 months in the Devalumab with uh, placebo cohort. Um, and this hazard ratio was quite uh, close to one, 0.94, which was not statistically significant. Now, when they went back and looked at specifically the HR mutated um, subgroup, um, the here the median progression-free survival in the combination cohort was 5.6 months compared to 1.8 months in the patients treated with Duralimab with placebo. Now, small numbers, but um, and so that's why in this population, um, uh, we are seeing a difference and, and the hazard ratio here was 0.18. Um, but again, it was a, a pre-specified secondary analysis um, and therefore um, on, on the whole, the trial was, um, uh, was perceived as negative and not meeting um, um, the PFS endpoint and the intention to treat population. But I think it highlights, though, um, that in the patients who really are um, selected for homologous recombination repair defects, um, that these patients potentially may have some benefit. Um, it's just that the patient population wasn't quite big enough and it wasn't the primary endpoint of the study. Do, do you feel that any of these trials will affect your clinical practice tomorrow if you see a patient with muscle invasive bladder or with metastatic bladder cancer? You know, I'm, I'm um, intrigued by uh, Rucaparib in the setting of um, uh, chemo response than maintenance PARP. Um, we, we do have maintenance Avelumab in this space in unselected populations, um, but I may think about it in um, patients who are uh, potentially um, selected beforehand. If I have their genomic predictors um, beforehand, we may talk about it. Now, I would add that neither rucaparib nor olaparib are uh, approved or on label for these indications. And so certainly it would be an uphill battle in terms of uh, off-label use. And I, you know, to be honest, I don't think they will um, uh, impact my care uh, on Thursday when I go back to clinic. um, but uh, they are, are quite intriguing for the HR-selected population. You know, what's also interesting is it's, you mentioned that there is, you have an agent right now in that setting that is uh, kind of standard, the Avilumab, right? Um, Absolutely. So Avilumab is standard of care in terms of um, ongoing patients that are candidates for it. And so we are certainly using maintenance of Velumab. And so, you know, could any of these um, treatments add to maintenance of Velumab, for example? And there are um, multiple trials that are ongoing um, to add to maintenance of Velumab. Um, so I'm, I'm sure uh, potentially one of these um, uh, new new treatments may um, be combined with Velumab, um, potentially in this setting. I'll have to tell you a lot of times whenever whenever something emerges at these meetings and we see this like newer trial data and so on, especially the ones that are larger phase three, uh, you know, I mean, not all of them are necessarily practice changing, but every so often when you get one of these, it makes you always wonder what are you going to do with the trials that are already ongoing and that, that did not really account for the trial result. Uh, the, let's say they compared another maintenance to placebo where now you already have a new maintenance therapy that's approved. I mean, you can't really go back and redesign the whole thing. I I really think, I mean, it's a good problem to have, obviously, because you got this new drugs and so on, but for the clinical trialists like yourself and your colleagues, it poses a challenge, no? 
Absolutely. Um, and as the landscape changes and as the standard of care changes, we have to be one step ahead of the standard of care. Yeah. Um, so, for example, as adjuvant therapy got approved or as maintenance of Elimab was approved, we have to alter our trials to adapt for these standard of care approaches and make sure that uh, these standard of cares are, are allowed and reasonable um, for in these populations that we're carefully selecting for, for the trials. Yeah. Okay, let's go kidneys. Awesome. So um, the one big um, trial that reported out, of course, um, in kidney cancer um, and, and provided an update uh, was Keno 564. Um, now, our audience knows that this was um, the adjuvant pembrolizumab versus placebo trial, and uh, we had the 30-month follow-up um, for patients uh, treated with pembrolizumab. Um, so still an ongoing uh, good disease-free survival benefit in the intention-to-treat population. Um, has a ratio was 0.63. Um, but they also, I thought, interestingly selected out the recurrence risk subgroups. And there was a particular a high risk subgroup um, in this uh, study defined by T4 disease or node positive disease um, that benefited quite a bit, I, I thought, meaningfully uh, from a year of pembrolizumab, um, where placebo, the two-year uh, progression uh, the two-year disease-free survival rate was 35% for placebo versus 48.7% uh, for patients treated with pembrolizumab, and the hazard ratio there was 0.6. And then also in the um, M1NED, so that population was the patients who had um, received a metastasectomy and otherwise were, had no evidence of disease. Here, the benefit was uh, quite large, um, so 38% uh, for patients treated with placebo at two years of disease-free survival uh, rate versus 78.4% for patients treated with pembrolizumab, and here the hazard ratio was 0.28. Um, so, uh, you know, none of these endpoints were primary, um, but um, they're very interesting subgroups and perhaps help us uh, distinguish uh, the patients who might benefit the most from a year of pembrolizumab. And the final um, hist uh, histology um, feature uh, that they looked at was sarcomatoid status. And here also um, we saw a, a bigger benefit uh, for pembrolizumab. Um, so 52% uh, two-year disease-free survival rate for patients treated with placebo versus 72% or so uh, for patients treated with pembrolizumab. So I think you know we're all trying to figure out which of these um, populations make sense to use pembrolizumab on. Um, and uh, breaking out the subgroups here um, was very helpful in terms of thinking about uh, which patients we should offer and which patients might benefit the most. You know, I, I, I don't think this podcast will allow us to delve into uh, the ultimate debate of uh, overall survival versus other endpoints. Obviously, it's not really beyond the scope of today's podcast. But, but, um, but you did allude to uh, a couple of things. I think when we're talking about prostate, you did mention uh, you're waiting, obviously, for longer follow-up for overall survival benefit. For RCC, it met the primary endpoint. There's no OS benefit. But in your, in your, in your practice, this is practice changing. You feel for select patients, you, you do give Pembro, right? Or am I... Yeah. And, you know, to be honest, in many disease types, we look for disease-free survival as the endpoint, and it is a regulatory endpoint that's uh, that where drugs are approved. And that's why we have pembrolizumab approved now uh, for uh, patients in this high risk, uh, or even the T2 and higher, um, the same population that was studied on this trial. 
Um, and, and you're right. So in terms of overall survival, we still haven't ha- seen enough events occur uh, for patients treated on this particular trial, but they will continue to follow um, all the patients on this trial. Um, and eventually we may see um, what uh, pembrolizumab is doing for overall survival. Overall survival as an endpoint, and me from the trialist perspective, it is a bit of a muddier picture because in settings like this one where um, patients have access to more immunotherapies, same mechanisms of action um, in the post-progression or post-disease recurrence status um, as this uh, uh, stage is particularly studying. Um, The biggest question in the room is whether early pembrolizumab is better than late, uh, for example, uh, late either IOIO combinations or VEGF-IO combinations. And so I think the jury is still out in terms of improving overall survival, but certainly disease-free survival as an endpoint is quite valid and one where adjuvant pembrolizumab certainly has achieved its goal. Thanks for the clarification, Tian. Um, Anything else about RCC, renal cell carcinoma? Yeah, sure. So we also, um, uh, and you and I have participated in um, this particular study um, from the Keras uh, Precision Oncology Alliance, um, and that was presented by uh, Raina McKay at this year's GU-ASCO, um, where we profiled 657 uh, renal tumors. The majority were clear cell, um, another 10% papillary, 5% chromophobe, and uh, 10% that had sarcomatoid features. And we really, I, I thought it was a great study because we looked at um, different uh, sites of disease and different metastatic um, uh, disease sites in terms of how these alterations and mutations changed. Um, and so, you know, the biggest uh, takeaways for me were that, were that um, we were often seeing um, things that we're used to seeing, right, in, in clear cell kidney cancer, like um, the uh, the VHL, PBRM1, and SETD2. Um, but also, in particular, of the sites of disease, um, we saw some in CNS um, meds in the brain, for example, that had uh, P53 and P10 loss. Uh, We saw in the GI tract um, uh, alterations in FAT1, and then on the skin mets, um, alterations in MUTYH, thinking along Bert hogg dubé type of um, syndromes. Um, In the transcriptome subsets, there's been a lot of uh, effort and characterization around um, uh, transcriptomes and gene expression profiles. And here we saw more T-cell T-effector signatures and proliferation in the skin, lymph nodes, lung, and bone mets, Um, a bit more angiogenic profiles in patients who had endocrine, bone, or kidney itself. Um, And it really highlights the importance of the um, hypothesis around seed and soil. It's really important for the site of metastasis to be able to uh, hold on to and cultivate and allow a metastasis to grow. Um, but also the the um, actual um, seed or the tumor cell that lands there has to be able to grow. So um, I thought that was um, quite interesting um, and hypothesis generating for future therapies. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it was great effort uh, that you all did at the Precision Oncology Alliance. I, I think uh, you all pulled on a really amazing, amazing uh, abstract. Anything else we missed, uh, Tian, before uh, we part ways? I think those were the highlights, Chadi. Obviously, there's so many more abstracts and great science that was presented uh, that we can't uh, highlight in, in this particular podcast. But it was so exciting to see everyone in person. And I know a lot of 
discussions in science were pla- was planned also for future um, trials and, and studies. So um, always a pleasure chatting. And I think what, ASCO 2023 will be probably fully in person. You think it's going to be hybrid as well? What do you think? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> you can't uh, ever... Well, I, I have a feeling they will keep a hybrid component because some yeah. folks who are international and... I, I don't think, I think we'll still be hybrid, but I do think we'll have a lot of in-person attendees. I, that's what I think. I hope so. Yeah, it was great to see everyone and to participate and you know, could really feel the energy in the room being in person. Yeah, well, it's great to see you and all of our colleagues, uh, Dr. Tian Zhang on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chadi. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I appreciate your support and your loyalty. Thank you to Dr. Tian Zhang for joining us on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast and for providing us with very important practical updates on the ASCO-GU presentations. I would love for you to let me know how I'm doing. You can direct message me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan or send me an email to cnabhan at kerisls.com. Subscribe to the show, refer friends or a colleague to the show, and like the show, of course, and write a brief review. Until next time, thank you and take care.